Well, if you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn to uh, the book of 1 John. We'll be in chapter 3 today. 1 John chapter 3. And remember, by, just by way of review, uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and uh, through chapter 3, verse 3, we're reminded that there will be a day when Jesus will come again. And we all look forward to that, right? Can't wait. Man, that was weak. We all look forward to the return of Christ, right? There we go. There we go. Just making sure we're all awake here. But we look forward to that day. And, uh, but the text, however, tells us that we need to abide in Him until that day comes. And so that, that day, if we're abiding in Him, walking in obedience, doing what He's asked us to do, that we may stand before Him in confidence and not in shame. And so the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again someday should remind us and should uh, give us motivation to live a pure and holy life. So as we come into First John chapter two, verse uh, chapter three, uh, verse three, we see characteristics of a genuine child of God, and uh, we're reminded just how many times throughout this passage it talks about being a child of God, and what are the characteristics of a person who truly knows uh, and knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. I, I've said many times, Christian, the term Christian can oftentimes be really ambiguous. You know, there's so many people who say, well, hey, are you a Christian? The pat answer is, yeah, I'm a Christian. But yet, they really don't live a life that mimics the life of Christ. And so probably a better phrase, a better terminology is, are you a follower of Christ? Because that has a whole different connotation, right? And uh, it's hard to misconstrue that phrase. Because there are certain things that are characteristic in the life of somebody who follows Christ. (coughs) So if you would... Uh, follow along as I begin reading chapter 3, verse th- uh, 4, through uh, verse 10. It says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. And so let me just kind of, before I finish out the rest of this passage, kind of give you a couple things just to chew on in your mind. Number one, it's not the idea of sinless perfection. The reality is, and you know the truth of that, is that none of us are sinless. None of us has the ability in and of ourselves to be completely without sin. So it's not talking about a person who knows Jesus Christ never doing anything wrong, never having uh, any sin in their life. It's literally talking about someone who has a pattern or patterns of sinning in their life. Because we know that the truth of this is this, is that we have Jesus Christ in our lives. If He is our truly our Savior, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we should have victory over patterns of sin and sinfulness in our life, right? We should have the ability to walk as He's called us to be holy in holiness. So we should have that ability. Going on in verse 7, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. And then verse 10, we see an imperative of love, the importance of love, the, uh, the significance of love. It says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So we see some characteristics of a person who truly does know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, 
You know, I'm not sure about you, but I like things that are genuine. Uh, for example, I, I don't know about you, but I like leather shoes. Anybody else? I've just found in my life that leather shoes on my foot last longer, and every time I've gotten a pair of plastic or vinyl shoes, they crack right on the front toe part, and I hate it. It drives me nuts. And then pretty soon you see the little vinyl uh, you know, rips in it, and you see the fabric underneath it holding it all together, but I like genuine leather versus fake plastic or vinyl shoes. That's me. Number two, I would rather have a glass of real grape juice than grape Kool-Aid. Anyone else? Right, we like what is real, not what is fake. Uh, number three, uh, I would rather, if I could, give my, life, give my wife a nice, real big diamond over a fake diamond, over a cubic zirconium. I would rather give her something real. Ladies, what would you rather have? You don't care? Oh, come on. Okay. It doesn't have to be big. We've heard that a million times. It doesn't have to be big, but give me a diamond. Right? Come on. Work with me. It's an illustration. <laughs> Number four. With the exception of Marianne Cosgrove, as I said in the early service, I would rather smell real flowers than fake plastic ones. I mean, come on, I don't want to smell plastic flowers. They just don't do anything for me. It's, I told Mike, on the other hand, you're blessed. You don't have to buy flowers for your wife. Uh, but if you can find some good fake ones, I'm sure she'd appreciate it. Anyway, here's the final one. I would rather have real money than monopoly money. Anybody say amen? That's right. Monopoly doesn't do anything for me. It might be fun. It might be a game, but it does nothing for me. I want the real deal. I think it's equally important for those of us who know Jesus Christ to be genuine and not be fake. Not even be close to the original. Let's be like the original. That's what he's called us to do. But you get the idea. I've, I've even said so often, so many times, I even like a leather Bible versus bonded leather. I like real leather. I don't know about you, but I like things that are real. I like things that are authentic. Things that uh, have value. God wants our life to have value. Because we're walking with him. He wants us to be genuine. He wants us to be real. So as we study this next text of scripture, we're going to see some very important characteristics of a genuine child of God. The very fact that John spent so much time on this subject matter reiterates its importance. You know, over and over as we've been going through 1 John, we see these aspects. They just keep popping out and keep popping out and keep popping out. And my only reason and rationale for th this thinking is this. You wouldn't have to keep reiterating it. You wouldn't have to keep proclaiming it if the people were living it. And I think we're no better than those people that we need the reminders. We need the, the daily reminders that we are to commit our lives to God, to walk with Him, to say what we, and to live out what we say is in our hearts and, and uh, to be true in every facet of that. The very fact that He does this over and over reminds us that we need it as well. And God wants His children to live in righteousness so, once again, as I studied this passage this week, the theme jumped out of every verse. Actions really do speak louder than words. We talked about that many times in the past. According to our text, our actions will speak either of righteousness or of sinfulness. Either way. And, you know, God's Word also reminds us we can't be in the middle. You can't walk the fence and, well, one day I'm going to lean towards the world and one day I'm going to lean towards righteousness and live for God. We have to make a choice where we're going to live. And so we can't walk in the, in the middle. Uh, so, you cannot be a child of God and continue with having patterns of sinfulness in your life. 
And once John declares the theme of this text, he then gives a treatise as to why the children of God should not keep on sinning. And once again, let me just say as we go forward, it's not the idea that you'll never do anything wrong. That is not possible in our lives. We're not sinlessly perfect. Only one man was, and that was Jesus Christ. And that's why he was a sinless sacrifice that took away the sins of the world. So John begins with verse 4 with a very bold statement. Emphatically, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Um, the practice of sinning, if you will, has the idea of a habitual, constant lifestyle or pattern. A daily practice, if you will, of sinning. Which John says is lawlessness. And lawlessness has the idea of living as if there is no authority in our lives. I don't know about you, that, but that one dimension makes living for God sometimes difficult. And I'll say it this way. How many of us enjoy having authority in our lives? How many of us really enjoy people telling us what to do, when to do it, how to do it, when, how often to do it? Anybody? It's amazing. I don't see any hands raised. We naturally, in our flesh, hate authority. And he says those who practice sinfulness practice lawlessness. And lawlessness is the idea of not having an authority, not having a guideline, not having anyone that we're accountable to. So when we continue in sin and have as patterns of sinfulness in our lives, we're saying that we are not accountable to anybody, including God. And that's very, very emphatic here. So it's living as though there are no boundaries or guidelines for which we need to be submissive. So the person living in lawlessness lives as though there are no laws for them to obey and to follow. And uh, this person lives with an idea or a daily attitude of rebellion in their life. And God's word tells us in 1 Samuel that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And so that's pretty, pretty bold. So someone once said there are two types of sin. There is the sins of commission and sins of omission. Uh, the definitions really do speak for themselves, right? So we don't have to go into a lot of detail. But very simply, sins of commissions have to do with the sins that you commit every day against a holy and righteous God. And the opposite, the sins of omission are sins that you commit by not doing the things that God expects you to do. Most of us have the idea in our hearts, we would never vocalize it, but hey, I'm better than you. I'm not involved in the sin that you're involved with. And uh, blah, 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 blah. And we have this idea in our heart and our minds that we're pretty good people. But we can honestly look at our lives and say, well, I didn't kill anybody. And I really, for the most part, I don't lie or cheat or steal. Uh, for the most part, I haven't, you know, exhibited too much pride and arrogance this last week. You know, I'm a pretty good person. And most of us would probably be pretty honest in making those kinds of claims. But I wonder if you're like me, because I'll put myself in these sandals just for a moment. What about sins of omission? Things that God expects you to have in your life as a practice, and you just ignore them. How, how many have ever, you can feel free to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever felt compelled to share your faith with somebody and you just didn't do it? I have. I've been in a hurry, got too many things to do, somebody's waiting on me, there's expectations around me, and you get the Holy Spirit saying, take a moment and, and, and talk to them. And I just go on my merry way. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sinful, just like you. Here's the other one. Have you ever just kind of come to the conclusion that, hey, I, I don't have to do that because, you know, uh, you know I, I've done it all my life. This is, and this is what I'm referring to. I've met so many Christians over the years 
they get up in their years, or elderly years, 70s, sometimes in the 80s, and they say, well, you know, and I've been guilty of this. I've even encouraged it. I've said, I'm not upset if you're not serving the Lord, but, you know, bottom line is, you know, you know, it's time for another generation to step up and do some stuff, right? Anybody ever heard that phrase before? It's time for the next generation. But we say it in the sense that it gives us a buy. It gives us a, an excuse, a rationale as to why we don't have to do anything. Now, here's what I believe. We can justify why we're, we've omitted those areas of service from our life. We, I'm older. I'm tired. I can't lift as much. I can't do this. I can't do that. In fact, I got a friend who was irritated with his church who was primarily in their 70s. He was upset because they wouldn't go out in the community every week and invite people to church. And I said, listen, bro, they're not... They're 77 years old. They're not going to be out going door to door for six hours on Saturday. True? Right. But here's what they can do. Change the expectation. God wants us to be a part of his work, right? They can come to the church and pray while you go out. See, I believe that we've omitted certain areas of what God expects of us. And we've justified it. We've rationalized it. We've excused it for whatever reason. But here's what I also know. If you're willing to work for the Lord and serve the Lord, he'll give you an avenue. But we've omitted it. So you may not be guilty of the sins of commission, but you may be guilty of the sins of omission. Things that God expects you to do. How many have ever said, well, hey, I know I should read my Bible this week, but doggone it, next thing you know, it's pastor encouraged us on Sunday, and next thing you know, it's Friday, and I haven't even opened my Bible yet. Don't raise your hand. But maybe you're guilty. You know you should be doing it. You've been encouraged to do it. But other things crept in. And once again, we justify it, rationalize it, excuse it because we're busy. We've omitted those things from our life. And it's become a pattern. We ought to be careful for those things. And the list could go on. But the idea is that we're oft, oft, oftentimes more guilty than what we think. Maybe not of the sins of commission things that we've done against the holy and righteous God, as much as we've omitted some things from our life that we know should be there. And these patterns of sinfulness need to be dealt with. So the sins of omission, not doing the things that God expects you to do. You know, in James chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, Therefore, to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is what? Sin. Man, we, is anybody, we don't even like saying that word, do we? It's so quiet. It's what? We don't even want to say it. But that's the truth of it. If we know from God's word that there's an expectation for how we are to live and we choose not to do it, God's word says it is sin. So the bottom line is this. Sin in any form grieves the heart of God. And once again, we have this idea that there's this scale of sinfulness. I mean, after all, just a little white lie. I mean, I fibbed just a little bit. I mean, God understands. I mean, I, I just exaggerated a little bit. I mean, the fish wasn't this big. I mean, it was this big. I mean, the, the, you know, the deer I shot, it was, it was not 300 pounds. It, it, I mean, 180 pounds. It was, it was 250 pounds. And it's just a little fib. Just a little. But you know, exaggeration is lying. You know that? And a half-truth is a whole lie. But after all, a, a lie is only a, like a one or two on the scale, whereas murder is a ten. As if the lying is better than the killing. 
You see, here's the deal. All sin, what? Breaks the heart of God. Yes, different sins have different consequences, for sure. But all sin breaks the heart of God. Right? So it's not about just the little thing that we may think is insignificant and may be becoming a pattern in our life. It's the big things, too. It's the little things, too. It's all of it. Because all sin breaks the heart of God. Psalm 119.77 says this, Let your tender mercies come to me, that I may live. For your law is my delight. It is my meditation all the day. When I think of Psalm 119.77, I don't think of law being delight. I don't know about you, but I don't delight when the law says speed limit 55. That does not bring me any delight. When I'm in a hurry, I wish it were 75. There are parts of Kansas and Texas that I love when it says 75 mile an hour. That, 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 that I love. That law I love. But there are laws that we don't agree with. But how does the law become a delight when you love the one who's given it to you? You see, when I got married, as we say often, we didn't get the guidebook, but we got this book. And it teaches us how to love our spouse, right? And the more I love my spouse, what I realize is that the guides that I have within God's word become easier. Why? Because I love the one who has given them. And I can love God. When as I love God, I know that what he's doing is what? For my best interest. For my good. So Psalm 119.77, the law is my delight. It's my meditation. Verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. When we love the one who gives it to us, we don't have a problem obeying it. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 in our text, it says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. In Romans chapter 7, verse 12, it says, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. In verse 22 it says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So there is a law that he says is good for us, that, we, that, that helps us obey the one who gave them. As we get into Romans chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts, wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you before, and just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, There is a lifestyle, there is Patterns that should not be in your life. And if these things are part of who you are, we need to be careful that we may not be a child of God. We may not know Him as we claim. Um, Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think there are going to be a lot of people one day who stand before God and they're going to be shocked when He says, Depart from me, I never knew you. Because these things have been part of their life and they just overlooked them. In Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 17, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Anybody ever read that passage in Romans chapter 7 and say, blah, 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 blah. You ever, you ever come across that passage and it's like, man, it's tongue twisters. Here's what he's basically saying. 
The things that I know I should be doing, I struggle to do them. Why? Because my flesh is so strong. And the things that I know I should be doing, I struggle to do them. The things I shouldn't be doing, I find myself doing them. Why? Because my flesh is strong. It's a struggle. The battle's real, as they say. He says, verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. He says, in my mind, I'm making a, a determination. In my mind, I'm, I'm guaranteeing myself I won't do it, and then I catch myself doing it. And I, I make up my mind I'm not going to do that, and then I catch myself doing it. He said the struggle is there because of the flesh. He says, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. The fact that there is sinfulness in us and it comes out. And then he says, I find that a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Stop right there just for a moment. He says, listen. There is a war. In my mind, I know I should do this or that. But in my flesh, I give into it, and I catch myself doing this and this. And then he comes to this conclusion, O wretched man that I am. Why? Because he knows how vile is sinfulness. Let, let's just think about this for a moment. It says in God's word, all of our righteousness is ours what? Say it. Filthy rags. This is not by works of righteousness which I can do. You can't do enough good. There is not enough good in you. He says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't even know the depths of our own sinfulness according to God's word. And that's why he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Talk often how Paul said, I am the chiefest of sinners. I'll argue that point. Pastor, are you involved in some form of wicked sin that we don't know about? No. I'm, I'm just saying our flesh is weak. I'm saying every day we make up our minds we're going to do what's right, and it takes a millisecond to step into sin. The first time someone tells you to do something you don't like, the first time someone says something you don't agree with, the first time you want your will and somebody else says, I want my will. To be done. And all of a sudden those wrong thoughts, those wrong attitudes, those wrong actions, all of a sudden just come out. It takes a millisecond. And the only way to overcome that is to what? Abide. To live in the Spirit. To completely and daily surrender to the Lord what He wants. And that's not easy. That's why Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? He says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Why? Because he knew the sinfulness of his own flesh. As we look at verse 5, we find another reason that Jesus Christ appeared to take away our sins. He says in verse 5, And you know that he was manifested. That word manifest basically means he came down to earth. He came in the flesh. He, he came down to earth as a baby. So in this he's manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. The two thoughts in this verse that are huge, are huge to consider first uh, Jesus Christ, to have a pattern of sinning in our lives as believers contradicts why Jesus Christ came to this earth. 
If we have in our life patterns of sinfulness, that contradicts the very reason Christ came. He came so that we might overcome sin in a relationship with Him. Christ came so that believers could have victory over sin, so that sin would not keep God's children in bondage. Take your Bibles just for a moment and turn over to Romans chapter 6, just for a moment. Romans chapter 6. Romans in chapter 6. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In some of your translations, it may say, God forbid, or may it never be so. But here's the idea. When we think that sin is not a problem, this is where we abuse the grace of God. Says, well, you continue and say, well, sin's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. It's not that great. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not hurting anyone else. I mean, and when we can belittle sin and think it's not that big a deal, we are abusing the very grace that God has given us. He said, don't ever continue in sin just because when you pray, He's going to forgive you. If that's the reason you're going to God, just so that you can have a, a moment of peace over your sinfulness, wrong. He says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. What does that mean? That means that when before we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, before we claim to know him by our faith in him, we put our life to death. Who we were before Christ was buried with him. And just as Christ died on the cross and was buried, he rose again. When he came up, he came up in newness of life. He says, your sins have been put to death. Your old lifestyle was put to death. The patterns of sinfulness, when you became a believer, you were put to death. And verse 5, For if we have been united together in likeness of death, certainly we also shall be in likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For, he is, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says, verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. He says, it's a decision. And daily, we are to decide that we are not going to let patterns of sinfulness dominate us. We are going to surrender our lives to God daily. Commit our lives to God daily so that He can live within us. Jesus reminds us that there is no sin in Him at all. He said there is no sin. He lived a pure and holy life. That's why He said in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Be holy as I am holy. As He, does, as he who has called you is holy, so you be also holy in all your manner of living. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 24, it says, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you're healed. So the whole idea is that he says, you have the ability, and you need to choose daily to live in righteousness. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. One God, one mediator. We go to him. When we sin, we go to him. He takes care of it. 
As we look in verses 6 and 7, we know that John reiterates what he's already said in verse 4. And we, the reader, should be challenged to evaluate how we live life every day. The actions, the reactions of our life should reveal whether or not we truly are abiding in him. The words are very clear. Look at verse 6. He says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. If we are the ones who are habitually in a pattern of sinning, that says something about who we are. So how do we overcome that? Abiding. We talked about that a week ago uh, as well. It's abiding. And remember, we said that abiding is an action verb. We're to actively rest in the Lord so that we can have victory. So that we can walk in obedience, walk in holiness as he asks of us. So verse 7 gives us clear admonition. Let no one deceive you. To deceive means to be led astray. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. Bottom line, he says, don't let anyone lead you astray that this sin is not a big deal. This is a big deal because all sin breaks the heart of God, number one. And number two, we ought to view sin as God views it. Should we not? If God thinks it's wrong, then we should think it's wrong. If God thinks it's unrighteous, we should think it's unrighteous. If God thinks it's wicked, we should think it's wicked. We should have the same view of sin in our lives that God has of sin. And not let these areas of sinfulness become patterns in our life. And the key to not being deceived is to keep abiding in Christ and to be saturated with truth. So verse 8 says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus Christ came so that he might destroy the works of the devil and destroy patterns of sinfulness in our lives. In John chapter 8, verses 42 through 47, I think is very clear. There are people that we've known in our lives who have come into the church, they've made some type of uh, statement that they're a believer, and the next thing you know, they're gone. James, or John 8, 42 through 47, I believe, speaks of this. In verse 42, it says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Let's just stop right there for a moment. If God were your father, you would love me. And if we look at what it says in the gospel, it says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. So once again, there's the, the bridge between love and holiness and obedience. I'm willing to love the law, or I'm willing to be obedient to the law when I love the one who gave it. The bridge between love and obedience is great. It says, For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. There it is. Boom. When I want to do the things that are in my flesh, when I want to have as areas of, and patterns of sinfulness in my flesh, it says you are replicating what you have been taught of your Father, the devil. On the other hand, if you are living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, you are replicating the things that are taught by your Holy Spirit, 
or, the, or, or by your Heavenly Father, because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. He says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. When we listen and obey, it says that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's real. When we hear and do what we want to do and live in our flesh and let areas of sinfulness become patterns of, of what our reputation becomes, who we are in, in, in this world, then we're of our father, the devil. Our actions define us. How we live our life defines us. A couple of verses that really stand out. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is, right? We've talked about this. It means you have a mask on, and you're playing a part in a play, and you're really trying to be somebody that you are not. But when the play is over, the mask comes off, the costume gets taken off, put away, and that's who you really are. You're not that person that you're impersonating. You're not that person you're trying to portray. He says, let your love be real. And how do you do that? He goes on and tells us, Abhor what is evil. Why? Because it stems from your love from God, or love for God. Cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Psalm 97.10, You who love the Lord hate evil. Wait a minute. He says, if you love the Lord, you're to what? Hate evil. There's no middle ground there. He says, you that love the Lord hate evil. So once again, there should be a natural desire within us that if we claim to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we should love Him and hate what He hates. In Amos chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Hate evil, love good. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21-22, Test all things, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. It doesn't say most forms of evil. Right? It doesn't say almost all forms of evil. It says abstain from Every form of evil. And once again, the world packages things in a way that makes you think it's not that big a deal. We don't blush at stuff on TV anymore. We don't. I mean, 20 years ago, you know, you know, some, uh, some of you guys remember, you're old enough to remember Dan Quayle. Remember Dan Quayle? The first political race he ever lost was for the president. He won everything leading up to it. He was a successful politician. Which is amazing because he is very conservative and he was a Christian. He loved God. But the first time he dared call out a sitcom for not, I guess, because they were making light of sin, he called them out on it. The world turned on him. I had great respect for him. In a world that says, I need to please everybody, he says, I'm not worried about that. And Danquil lost that next race by a landslide because he was so conservative. He stood on biblical foundation. In the world that we live in, we don't blush at sin anymore, and we certainly don't want to call it out because that would draw attention to ourselves and make somebody not like us. Who wants to do that? Not me. Anybody love confrontation? You're sick. We don't like that stuff, right? We, we run from it. We don't want to have that part of who we are. But because of it, we don't often show that we hate evil and love what is good. 
Because of that, we don't abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, Romans 12. Because of that, we don't hold fast what is good, 1 Thessalonians 5, and abstain from every form of evil. Because we just want to blend in sometimes. Well, to have a pattern of sitting in our lives as believers contradicts the life of Jesus Christ's desire for us to live and does not make clear that we are truly followers of him. In verses 9 and 10, John boldly tells us that whoever keeps sinning is of the devil. Look at verse 9. It says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for he, his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Let me stop there just for a moment. My grandparents had a garden to die for. My grandparents that we used to grow up going to Michigan to you know, their house every summer, I'm not kidding you. When I say they had a garden twice the size of this auditorium, it was twice the size of this auditorium. They did it all day long. After they retired, that's all they did. Gardened. And I'm needing to tell you because of it, their whole basement was from floor to ceiling and shelves in the middle, canned goods. I felt like every time I went to my grandparents' house, it was like every meal was like Thanksgiving. It was so awesome. I mean, they had everything. In fact, they took their garden so, gardening so serious that even in the wintertime, they'd get those little... You ever seen those pill cups that the hospitals used to use years ago? Those little plastic pill cups? They have these little pill cups full of seeds. And they'd be all in the windows and in the lights, under lights, and they'd get, get these things growing all winter long so that when springtime came, they could go back to the garden and get all the stuff planted. It was every year. It was, like, it was like their full-time job. But you know what? How many have ever seen seeds before? Raise your hand. Seen those seeds? I have never seen a carrot seed produce a, produce a potato. I, I'm, I know, right? I've never seen a carrot seed produce a potato. And I've never seen a green bean seed make a carrot. Can you imagine? I mean, isn't that crazy? Well, duh. You know what seeds do? They produce the same thing that they came from. You're never going to see a carrot seed produce a potato. You're never going to see a green bean seed produce a carrot. Seeds produce after their like. Wait a minute. Hmm. What did that say? Verse 9. It says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. Seed. There's that seed again. You see, if we are born of God's seed, we should bear the image of what? Hey, thank you. It wasn't, it wasn't really a trick question. I'm, I'm just telling you. A seed produces what it comes from. If we are born of God's seed, that means we should bear and resemble God. And it says, if you're born of God, His seed is in you, and what should be coming out of us is the characteristic of who? Jesus Christ. So he says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For he has been born of God and does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. When you are truly born of God, you're going to bear the characteristics of God in your life. And then, verse 10. Says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a what? New creation. Old things are passed away, all things become new. There's a new seed in you. There's a new growth in you. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Once again, the idea, if we know him, we should want to serve him. That should also be one of those sins of omission, that if we're not serving God in some capacity, ought to cause us to be concerned. Because if we truly know him, we'll want to serve him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that what not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then verse 10, For we are his workmanship. Our works don't save us, but if we truly know him, we should want to serve him. So, we have to deal with that. And make sure that that's not one of those sins of omission that we've just conveniently left out. That has become a pattern. And the Holy Spirit does a work in the life of a believer. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, adultery, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, and we already read the previous passage that dealt with it, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, these things ought not to be patterns in their life. And then verse 22, but what should be a pattern is the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. So what characterizes our life as a child of God? Is it these patterns of sinfulness or patterns of righteousness and obedience? There's no real middle ground. In fact, God's word says in Revelation, he says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. At least there I know where you stand. But because you're lukewarm, I want to spew you out of my mouth. He said, you can't walk in the middle. You can't. Either patterns of sinfulness, and they reveal that we do truly know, or need to know Jesus Christ, through a relationship or patterns of righteousness that give evidence of the fact and verification of the fact that we are authentic, genuine children of God. So as believers, we are now born of his seed. And the seed is what brings the new life. We're made in the image of God, and therefore sin should not characterize the life of a believer. I like that whole idea of born in the image of God. One day, we're going to spend eternity in heaven. Amen? I'm going to put it for a skinny body. Just saying. No, really, I'm going to. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'll be like in heaven. But I know I'll be like him. On this earth, I struggle with that. But it's my desire, amen? We want to be like him. But his seed that grows up in us ought to be what changes us. And produces us to be like him. If we were to stand before God, and we will one day, but if you were to do an immediate evaluation of our life as we live it each day in our flesh, what types of things would he see as patterns or lifestyles in us? Would he see a pattern of obedience? 
or pattern of sinfulness. If there's patterns of obedience, it gives credibility to what we say. Because actions speak louder than words. It's not just enough to say I'm a follower of Christ. How do we live? But if our life is characterized by patterns of sinfulness, that ought to cause us to look internally and say, why am I not having victory? Why do I keep giving in to this sin? And why is this sin dominating my life? Do I really know Jesus? Or do I need to confess my sins and put all my faith and trust in him to do in my life what I cannot do? There's characteristics that ought to be there. So the answer to that question might either humble us or embarrass us or it might just give us great joy knowing that God is at work and he's doing a work that only he can do. Amen? I can't live the life apart that he expects me to live apart from his Holy Spirit living within me, apart from me abiding in him every day. I need to I need to have a daily surrender and commitment to the Lord. I can't do it. My flesh is way too strong. Ask my kids. They'll tell you all the blunders I make every day. Even though in my mind I make up my mind I'm not going to do any stupid things today. That lasts about, what, half hour? If I'm lucky, just ask them. Unless you cast judgment, I know you do. We struggle. But it only comes, the victory only comes as we surrender every day and commit to Him every day, fresh and anew. Surrender to the Spirit every day. Actively abiding, actively resting in Him for Him to do the work in our lives that we cannot do. I don't know about you, but I need these reminders. What should I look like as a child of God? Am I genuine? In my faith. It's not about what I look like. It's about who he knows me to be. Let's pray.